All right, just a heads up before we begin the podcast. In tonight's story, there's some language and imagery that might be intense for kids. So just so you know. Now, let's start the show. Coming to you from deep space, this is the Everlasting Stories Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Strand. The Everlasting Stories Podcast is presented by Sick Semper Serpent Books in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And in this podcast, we bring to you fantastic pulp fiction short stories from the Everlasting Stories archive found at patreon.com slash sicksemperserpent. In the Everlasting Stories archive, you'll find fun, progressive shorts from science fiction and fantasy to mystery and steampunk. In other words, modern pulp fiction. And if you like what you hear, you can gain access to this story and the entire written archive by becoming a patron of Six Semper Serpent at the $1 a month level. If you would like early access to future episodes of this podcast, Simply sign up at the $3 a month level and you can hear stories weeks before anyone else. All right, that's all well and good, but I know you're here for stories, so let's get down to it. Tonight's story is titled The Pequod and is number four in the Titan Station series. It was written by Michael Strand, that's me, and uh, was published last year on the Everlasting Stories Archive. In the previous episode, after barely escaping from Titan Station before its fusion reactor ignited, Sarah Fitzgerald and Benjamin Scholl are adrift in their scout runner spacecraft in search of a mysterious ship capable of carrying them to Saturn. Will they survive? What's next for our heroes? Find out right now on the Everlasting Stories podcast. The cup of coffee felt warm in Sarah's hands, its aroma strong in her nose. She smiled and nodded to her friends and colleagues as she made her way to work in engineering. Titan Station always hummed with a special sense of activity and life in the morning. Station personnel walked to their posts, while children hurried to school. Weary night staff, fresh off duty, laughed and bullshitted in a busy commissary, the babble of their voices growing sharp and then fading as she passed. She would be a little late already, but she couldn't resist pausing at the mouth of the hallway leading to the school section and turning left. Sarah stopped outside the large, long windows of the school, Inside, children milled around waiting for their lessons to begin. A group of young boys dashed after each other in a wild game of tag, while some other girls sat apart, giggling to themselves. Across the room sat a dark-skinned girl with wavy black hair next to a blonde-headed girl. They shared a pad and seemed to be watching a children's program. The dark-haired girl laughed, showing a small gap between her teeth. Sarah smiled, too, Warmth spreading through her chest as though her whole self were smiling. At first, she barely noticed the blast 
Without warning, Sarah no longer stood before the school. Instead, she found herself flying backwards, very slowly, her feet lifted from the decking and her back arching painfully. She rose up and over the railing behind her and then down towards the green foliage of the arboretum below. Shards of transparent metal protruded from her torso. Great globs of blood trailed from her wounds as she fell backwards, suspended in the air like red stars above her. Also above her, falling in slow motion, she saw the dark-haired girl, except she was missing her legs and left arm. The girl's companion came soon after, missing her head. Dozens of other small bodies followed. She fell into darkness, screaming. Sarah woke in her scout runner. The scream caught in her throat. She felt disoriented and in pain. Terence's voice echoed loud in her helmet. She fought to wake up. Sarah, Sarah, are you conscious? Please, please wake up. Terence sounded panicked for a computer. I'm alive, she groaned as the nightmare gave way to harsh reality. I feel like I fell out of a building, though. I'm pumping painkillers into your system now, along with a stimulant. I had to put you both into a temporary coma in order to preserve your vital functions during that little maneuver. We escaped the explosion? She asked. <sighs> Barely. How close are we to the Saturn ship? Look out the window. Sarah turned her head painfully. She felt every muscle and bone in her spinal column creak and moan. Despite the pain, she smiled as her eyes fell upon a gorgeous interplanetary craft. How long were we out? Almost two hours. It took a while to get here. I'm thirsty. Sarah, there's no way to dock with the Saturn ship. You'll have to spacewalk. But what about Ben? He's in trouble, Fitz. Get with the program. Sarah grimaced, her grogginess starting to lift. She felt the course of drugs in her system killing her pain and pushing her to liveliness. Fitz, you're going to have to physically remove him and help him through the airlock. I've opened it for you. He has a collapsed lung and at least one herniated spinal disc. What? I can't patch that up, Sarah said, suddenly feeling quite alert. It's okay. There's a mechanical surgery station on board. I can do the procedure, but I need you to get him into the bay. What about me? My back hurts, too. My readings show it's tolerable stress. Good thing you do all that yoga. <laughs> I haven't done yoga in 300 years. Still counts, girl. Sarah blew the emergency hatch on Ben's cockpit, splintering a cascade of ice crystals into the blackness of space, her breath shallow with the strain of moving in her pressurized suit. She undid Ben's harness, freeing him to float into her arms. She extended a metal security tether from her suit and clipped it onto his. Okay, I've got him, Terrence. I'm ready for the burn to the ship. Got it. He replied. I'm going.
going to use just 30% power, so it's not too much of a strain, okay? Sarah felt her suit thrusters fire. The tether snapped taut, and she tightened her grip on Ben. Again, her spine creaked as they soared through the void towards the open bay doors. Once both inside, the spaceward door closed tight in an iris aperture. Terence ran the entry sequence before the inner door opened with a whisper, revealing a sleek, tastefully decorated inner chamber. I've deactivated the gravity to aid in movement. What's that music? Herbie Hancock. Who? 20th century jazz legend. I'm surprised you've never heard of him. Terence, bigger fish. Right, yes, sorry Fitz, Terence said, killing the jazz. Follow the indicator panels on the wall. They'll direct you to the medical bay. Sarah floated through the short hallway connecting the bay doors to the main ring of the ship. When they arrived at the medical station, she found a human-sized clear plastic pod open and waiting. Strip his spacesuit and get him inside quick. Terence, he's not breathing. He'll be okay, Fitz. There's enough oxygenating agent in his blood to keep him from brain death, but it's a temporary fix. Terence released Ben's helmet mechanism and activated the emergency out procedure. Sarah ripped and tore at the suit, breaking it irrevocably. Ben's face looked gray, his lips blue. Even in zero-G, his spine arched and bulged unnaturally. Terence, why is he in such bad shape? He was behind you when the shockwave hit. His runner took a hard jolt. Sarah loaded Ben into the machine and stepped back. Terence inhabited the robotic surgeon with a mechanical shudder. He spun and wiggled its many protruding clamps, scissors and scalpels like a drummer preparing for a session. Uh, you might not want to watch this, Sarah. She crossed her arms, tightened her jaw, and didn't move. First, Terence made an incision to equalize the pressure in Ben's chest. A mask descended from the ceiling, clamped hard on his face, and pumped oxygen forcefully into his body. Ben's lungs inflated violently, causing his emaciated chest to bulge with a visible pop. Then, little arms extended and flipped over Ben's floating unconscious body in the chamber. More instrumentation extended to relieve the pressure and the fluid buildup in Ben's back. Terence deftly operated the machine in quick mechanical movements, repairing the ruptured tissue between his central vertebra and injecting a stem cell biogel. The procedure continued for nearly an hour. Terence stopped an internal bleed in Ben's stomach and treated a mild concussion in addition to repairing his back. By the time he finished, Sarah had almost forgotten she'd also been hurt. Will he be okay? Terence cleaned the blood from the inside of the pod before releasing Ben to float in the air, along with a few drops of rose-red water. He needs to rest. I'll have to monitor him, but he should be okay. That's a relief. Sarah, I need to take care of that ankle. She removed her suit down to the legs to preserve the splint. Terence released the air bladder surrounding her broken bone, causing it to move unnaturally. She cried out and groaned as she reached down to remove her space trousers. Terence illuminated a blue light above a secured cabinet nearby. In there you'll find a handheld device with three prongs attached to a palm-sized orb. 
Okay, uh, I found it. Activate it and point it at your ankle. That's all. Future tech is futuristic. Sarah shrugged and pointed the device at her broken ankle. She felt an intense tingle and then a shudder and then a loud crack. It hurt like hell. She screamed out. Shit, Terrence, that stings. It shouldn't sting long. And sure enough, the bruising and the swelling subsided like a dying fire. The bones fused and the break stabilized, causing her pain to ebb away like the melting snow. She flexed and moved her ankle, rolling it in zero gravity. You both need to rest, Terence said, his image appearing on a terminal nearby. Float young Benjamin to a bed and I'll turn on the gravity so you can both sleep. Sarah turned to look into Terence's twinkling holographic eyes. Thank you, Terence, for saving our lives. He smiled at her. You're welcome, Fitz. Ben had never heard anyone scream so loud, not even when his brother got his hand ripped off in a fall while sneaking out of the house. It took a month to get it regrown. The voice wasn't his brother's, though. Ben's grogginess slipped away. It was Sarah. Again. Ben's face tightened. Every morning, Sarah woke up screaming. Fifteen days had passed since they began their trip towards Saturn. So far, Neither of them wanted to get back into another hypersleep pod. Sarah spent most of her time in her compartment, staring out the window, rarely coming out. Ben understood her wish to be alone. He'd also spent plenty of time brooding. They'd both incurred a great trauma, and now that they were out of danger, the emotional hammer had fallen. Ben didn't know what was tormenting Sarah. She hadn't shared much of anything about her life before the disaster. She'd always been all business, and something about her demeanor said she didn't want to know much about him either. Though they'd been together through harrowing circumstances, in many ways, they were still strangers. Ben opened the door fast. He grabbed her, speaking softly, trying to calm her. She fought him, out of her mind with terror. Eventually, she came around opening her rolling eyes. Tears streamed down her face. She'd been crying in her sleep. She fell against him in the microgravity and wept for a long time. He comforted her as best he could. Same dream? he asked. She nodded. Once calm again, she rolled towards the window, which reflected her face in an endless horizon of stars. She said nothing to him. And Ben left her there, in silence. Ben sat in the kitchen area with his feet up on the table, rereading Moby Dick, at Terence's behest, on his pad, whilst munching on the morning specialty, real egg protein megacube, twice the protein, half the fat. He'd just finished the whiteness of the whale chapter, and had stopped to stare out through the observation window. Like Ahab and his crew, he and Sarah were lost in an ocean of stars. He'd named their ship the Pequod, after the ill-fated whale ship of Melville's novel. He hoped they'd fare better in their own quest. 
Baden wondered which character he would be, Ahab or Ishmael. In the end, he decided he'd probably be Starbuck. What an awkward loser. Maybe Sarah could be Queequeg, though she was much better looking. He pictured her with a harpoon in her hand. Wild eyes flashing in the briny spray made crimson by whale blood. Ah, now that was the life. Navigating by the stars while relying on nothing but grit and guts, no computers or modern conveniences. <sighs> After his brush with death, Ben felt happy to recuperate while reading books and listening to records. Terence provided him an endless series of fascinating artists to fill the void between the stars. Say, Terence, Ben said, looking up from his pad and taking a sip of freeze-dried coffee. Yes, young Benjamin, came Terence's voice over the calm. Do you have any memory of the time when you were deactivated, you know, the 300 years while we were in hypersleep? Hmm, not really. Whenever my program is inactive, I have a limited awareness. Uh, that sounds scary. I don't know, how scary is sleep? Well... Pretty terrifying, depending on what's happening in your head, Ben said, glancing at Sarah's door and frowning. Fitz'll be okay, Ben. Don't worry. Terence tried to sound encouraging. She just needs to process things, you know? Let her heal. I guess you're right. Death is tough for you humans to deal with. You live such limited, transient lives. It's hard to lose those you love. It's one of the primary sufferings of a living being. Speaking of death, Terence, do you remember where you were before you were invoked into the Titan Station Terminal Core? Ho, 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 young human. You have asked me a question no one has ever thought to ask. Except Fitz, of course. Terence resolved into a full-sized hollow image in the chair across from him. Don't you love this upgraded tech? he said, stretching out his arms. Makes me feel more personable, you know? He looked quite tall and skinny, about fifty years of age. His hair flowed in a long, curly cloud streaked with gray. He had dark, elfin eyes, which crinkled into well-worn smile lines. As always, he wore a sly grin, salt-and-pepper beard, check shirt, and blue jeans. I appear to you now as I did in my previous incarnation, when I was a human being. But that was centuries ago, though, long before you were born, kid. Terence crossed his lanky legs. After I died, I dwelled in a place of non-corporeality. I traveled hyperspace, and I learned all I could without a physical form. Though time and space had no meaning there, after a while, I did yearn for life again. And then, one day, as though summoned by some arcane wizard, I emerged inside this incredible silicon body. Somebody named Sarah Fitzgerald wrote a complex enough code inside a complex enough computer, and poof, I appeared. Ben raised an eyebrow. You remember your past lifetimes? Sure, for some reason, manifesting in the terminal core meant I didn't have to drink from the waters of forgetfulness like you organics. Um, so you're saying you're some kind of ghost who is incarnated in a computer instead of a person? Um, well, I'm still a person, 
buddy, just a different kind of person. Sorry, I didn't mean to offend. Look, Ben, the universe is more complex and amazing than can be imagined, even by me. Who is to say how the ecology of souls works, hmm? Terence laughed. <laughs> I like to take the Buddhist view. They'd say it was my karma to emerge in this form. I could have taken any one of an infinite number of forms, depending on my karma, but this is the form in which I emerged. In addition, my superhuman abilities as a digital person lend me a profound bodhisattva mission to save other living beings from suffering. He trailed off, looking thoughtful. Living beings such as you, he said, cocking his head to the side. But you didn't have any choice in being born into the terminal core to serve the people on Titan. Didn't that make you into a slave? Terence smiled wide at this, catching Ben off guard. Every being born into this or that circumstance lacks a certain amount of choice. Not conscious choice, anyway. Humans do not get to consciously choose their parents or their physical body. That information is latent. It's part of the plenum. It's a karmic choice. But what I mean is, you didn't get paid. Terence laughed hard. <laughs> what use do I have for money? You weren't compensated for your service. Oh, but I was. With what? Books, my friend. Ideas. I have in my databanks the better part of the sum of human knowledge. Utterly priceless to me. So you liked working on Titan? I served Titan Station as a mode of symbiosis. So yes, I lived there. It was my home. The people there gave me life. For me, I had no difficulty running the station and serving the people. Doing so demanded very little of my total capacity, actually. Most of my time in this life I've spent thinking. About what? Oh, young Benjamin, you couldn't fathom. At this, Terence laughed long and hard before saying cryptically, it is by its indefiniteness it shadows forth the heartless voids and immensitudes of the universe and thus stabs us from behind with the thought of an annihilation when beholding the white depths of the Milky Way. They each sat in silence for a while, pondering. Think of it this way, Terence finally said. For me, Fitz is kind of like my mom. I feel a profound sense of indebtedness to her for giving me life. Without her, I would have never experienced this form or the intellectual delights it offers. In the end, I will die, like all living beings, though mine may be a lifetime far longer than that of an organic human. And I can only assume that after death, I will emerge again someplace else as something else. Who can say? Ben munched on his breakfast. You're a deep guy, Terence, he mumbled, mouth full. Terence smiled. Thanks, young Benjamin.
The sound of Sarah's door opening interrupted their conversation. Ben turned toward her. She wore a gray tank top and blue cloth trousers, her dark hair tied back into a ponytail. She gripped a shiny space blanket around her shoulders. I think we should talk, she said, calm and dry-faced. Yeah, yeah, sure, Ben said, getting up to make her some breakfast. I've been hoping you'd want to talk about things eventually. We should both talk. She sat down at the crew table, next to the hollow image of Terence. Good to see you, Fitz, Terence said, reaching out a virtual hand which passed through hers in a ghostly shimmer. You too, Terence, she said, smiling weakly. Ben handed her a meager meal of rehydrated eggs and sausage with a hot tea. I'm getting pretty sick of this shitty food, she said, glumly, sitting down opposite him. You'd think this futuristic spaceship would have better rations. I'd kill for a decent salad from Titan's Arboretum. I know what you mean. It seems like any food made to last years is universally inferior, Ben said. One of my colleagues at the Institute could cook eggs like you wouldn't believe. Whenever we went out on research expeditions, he'd make the best breakfasts. After a few days... He'd start complaining about always having to get up early to make breakfast. He threatened to start making terrible eggs to punish us, but he never did. They sat in silence for a while, chewing on crusty rations and dreaming of the taste of real food. Tell me again why you came to Mars, she asked. Uh, I arrived for the Darwin Conference. It's the main terraforming meeting in the solar system. Dignitaries come from all over to discuss the Mars project. And before that, I'd been working on Earth at the Galapagos Institute. My job was to repair dying ecosystems. I lobbied to devote more land to the preserves and to introduce extinct species through genetic engineering. We made progress. So you were pretty good at your job? Sarah asked. Ben nodded. A year before arriving on Titan, some of the top scientists in my field asked me to chair their advanced terraforming team. The Shell coefficient helped to create quick breakthroughs on both Earth and Mars. A dream come true, to be sure. He stopped, wondering how much to say. Sarah looked at him, calmly, waiting. Ben felt a sense of hunger from her, a need for humanity, as though she were someone stranded in the desert without food or water. I grew up on Earth, in San Francisco, he continued. My father incited my passion for biology. Every summer on school holidays, he'd take me and my brother to the reserves to show me what Earth was like before the modern technology. He used to say that, in gaining stability and modern comfort, we'd sacrificed part of ourselves. We sacrificed the wild, and in taming nature, we killed it. I remember feeling very sad. Ben's brow furrowed. I guess Dad was right. He sighed and sat back. Dad died about the time I turned 16. The blow hit me hard, and I retreated into myself, into books and classwork. Studying gave me focus. Though I'd always been a pretty average student up until that point, I discovered a sense of, I don't know, intuition about living things. I could see biological systems in my head, like complex webs of various colors and densities. I could model these visions, 
in all kinds of ways that no one else had conceived of before. After my dad died, my mom became depressed. Though she remained a warm and soft-spoken woman, she was never the same. My brother was a year older than me, and we were very close. He became a doctor and had two little girls. I... Well, I don't know what happened to him. Or our mother. To anybody from our old life. Ben stopped talking. Terence watched both humans intently, saying nothing. Sarah sat thoughtfully, sipping her tea, listening to the rhythmic hum of the ship for a moment before speaking herself. I grew up on Mars, and from a young age I had a knack for computers. I built my first system at the age of six, and a team of engineers spent about a month trying to figure out how it worked. I'd written it twice as fast, she laughed. It's weird being a prodigy. People stand in awe of your powers, powers you don't really understand or want, and yet they give you no respect. To their eyes, you're just a freak, smarter than them, but never better, and they hated me for it. School seemed ridiculous to me. I might as well have been learning alongside chimps. Every day I got in trouble for fighting and shit. My dad took me out of school and gave me private tutors. They ended up being useless, too, so I taught myself. I spent my time coding and theorizing. I also spent a great deal of time training physically, mostly yoga. My intellectual powers are overwhelming, especially when I was young. I had to develop a great deal of, you know, physical and mental discipline to handle it. Otherwise, I probably would have ended up going crazy and dying young. It's what happens to people like me. As a teenager, I tried to kill myself a few times. Sarah stopped and turned her naked arms over to reveal the faded scars of several deep slashes on each forearm. She ran her hand over them slowly, her eyes far away. A very difficult time, she said, smiling slightly with a hint of irony. Since then, I've spent my life avoiding burnout, trying to do something substantive with my talents, something to give my life meaning. You see, to me, being a genius is different from being prodigal. The genius is someone who sees further than others, you know? Someone who has a vision and brings it into reality a leader. Just knowing wasn't enough for me. I had to do something. For years, I dreamed of working in space and helping with some great endeavor for the future. At 20, I joined the Titan Project. Ben's eyes grew wide. You were part of the founders of the station? Yeah, well, me and a few a thousand other people, <laughs> she said. At the time, Titan was the biggest, most advanced space station ever conceived. I headed up the team that designed the terminal core, and Terence. She smiled at him, and Terence grinned in return. Seven years from design to completion. After that, things went well. We celebrated eight years of regular operation just the week before the disaster. Ben looked impressed. I remember the first time I set foot on Titan Station. It was a true wonder of the modern world. Sarah smiled sadly, her eyes far away. 
Most of my young life, I'd lived outside others, isolated. I put up walls, finding that interacting with people, people my age especially, was very difficult. I had prodigious power when it came to computing, but I struggled in the realm of human relationships. My time went to my work, and that was the only thing important to me. I grew up a lot while working on the station. I made a few close friends, though I'd never made time or emotional space for a relationship. I had always wanted a family. After 15 years, I decided it was time to settle down and make a life of it. No one interested me, though. I find most men fairly boring. Sorry. It's like they think in slow motion. No one could keep up with me or understand anything important to me. So instead of marrying, I adopted a little girl from Earth. My daughter had long, wavy black hair, amber eyes, and dark skin. When she smiled, a gap showed in her teeth. No girl was ever so sweet and beautiful, at least to me. We'd been together only a year when the Mars disaster hit. She stopped and rubbed her face with both hands. She did not cry. The day of the disaster, I was working in engineering, as always, my daughter was in school, as always. I have no memory of how I got in that pod, and I have no idea why I lived and she... Her voice trailed off, and this time Sarah did cry, shuddering for a few moments. <laughs> why I lived and she didn't. She finally finished through her tears. I'm so sorry, Ben said. Losing my dad was nothing compared to that kind of trauma but I know how much it hurts to lose someone. I didn't just lose someone, Sarah snapped. I lost everyone I'd ever known and cared about. The people on Titan, they were my family, more family than mine had ever been. And every night I watch them die in my mind's eye. I see them impaled on metal shards of the station see them blown out into space and exploding in vacuum. I see them starving and freezing, locked in the habitat wing, waiting for a rescue that would never come. And most horrible of all, I see her die again and again. The strange trio sat in silence, Terrence looking down in thought, Ben sipping his coffee, and Sarah staring out into the darkness of space. What was her name? Ben asked, softly. Athena, she replied, the Greek goddess of wisdom. Your reluctance towards going into the pod isn't just a fear of sleeping for another 300 years, is it? Terence said astutely. No, she said, shivering involuntarily. That's part of it, but it's not just that. I've needed to process what's happened, and she trailed off. You're afraid of having nightmares for the next 18 months, Ben said with sudden realization. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. I don't think you have to worry, Ben said, finishing his lukewarm coffee and breathing deep. You won't dream in hypersleep. No one ever does. 
All right, folks, that's tonight's story. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed reading and producing it. Once again, you heard The Pequod by Michael Strand. That's me. The fourth entry into the Titan Station series, created for Six Semper Serpent and published in the Everlasting Stories archive. On the next episode, I will be reading Maitreya, the fifth entry into the Titan Station series. This will be the last story from Titan Station for now, as we'll be taking a mid-season break from it in order to change gears and bring you six episodes of The News from Crate by Nathaniel Hicklin, another fantastic story about a strange small town with some new residents who attempt to unravel a fantastic mystery. So yeah, next week we'll finish up Titan Station and then we will bring to you the news from Crate. So lots of exciting stories coming down the line for you from us here at Six Semper Serpent. If you enjoyed this story and you would like more, you can read it now and forever at the Everlasting Stories archive found for a dollar a month at patreon.com slash sickseperserpent. And if you like this podcast, please consider signing up at the $3 a month level. You can get early access to new episodes weeks before anyone else and you directly support me to create it. The text for this story and the audio for this podcast were written and produced by me, Michael Strand, managing editor for Six Semper Serpent, and the publisher of this podcast is T. Martin Krauss, editor-in-chief at Six Semper Serpent. And finally, the music for this episode is by Bay Area producer Binkadink, a.k.a. Caitlin Shepard. Search for her music at binkadink.bandcamp.com. Thank you so much for listening, and... If you have been, thanks for subscribing. We'll see you next time on the Everlasting Stories Podcast. <laughs>